Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're taking a journey to the wild ends of the earth with Dan Richards and his new book, Outpost. Dan Richards is the co-author of Holloway with Robert McFarlane and Stanley Donwood and the author of The Beechwood Airship Interviews and Climbing Days, both of which we've talked about on previous Little Atoms. He's written for The Guardian, Harper's Bazaar, Caught by the River, Monocle and The Quietus. He's an RLF fellow at Bristol University. And Dan's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. Dan, welcome back. Hello, thank you for having me back again. Let's talk about, first of all, what the, I guess, the inspiration for this book was. Um, It was a couple of things and it was all to do with family without wanting to sound too Queen Vic about it. Um, the last book that I did, the climbing one, was about my great-great-aunt and uncle. And while I was writing and uh, mountaineering uh, in their footsteps, I spent some time in sort of high mountain cabins, these kind of very um, sort of altitudinous, quite Spartan spaces, uh, which I'd never really considered. And I think a lot of people don't really consider how... Um, alpinism works unless you're involved with it yourself so you know you walk um, a day's worth in our in our case in my case because I wasn't terribly fit um, at least at first Um, you know the first time it's at least a day the second time you go back it's half a day and you don't hurt as much and you hike up through um, sort of Heidi-like grasslands and then up over Glacier and up above the snow line and then perhaps you'll find a sort of cottage or cabin and if you're very lucky and it's the right time of year maybe it'll have a guardian who will cook you sausages and rosti and then will wake you up fiendishly early in the morning where you have a go um, at a summit or a, or a long trek along um, a sort of ridge or something like that um, and these really interesting uh, little cabins and some of them were quite sophisticated and some of them were pretty much just more architecture than being outside, but not much, um, set me thinking. 
Uh, and the other thing that inspired the book was the fact that just before I was born, my dad returned home from an Arctic expedition uh, that he'd been to um, Svalbard. He'd been up to Svalbard, which is the last land before the North Pole, um, a sort of Norwegian archipelago, formerly called Spitsbergen in general, but now Spitsbergen is the major island of that. He'd been in a place called Neolisund, which is kind of a company town for climate scientists. And when he came back, um, he brought a polar bear pelvis uh, that he had found um, on Kongersfjord and uh, he sort of, you know, came back and he'd had to get several flights from Neolison to uh, Longyearbyen and then Longyearbyen to Tromso in Norway and then Tromso to Luton uh, where they'd handed back the bear gun, sort of elephant gun that he'd had to take in case polar bears took too much of an interest in his party that he was the leader of and then got several trains to Swansea and then Pencloud on the Gower where my parents lived and turned up and was thoroughly knackered after several months away. And then the next morning he unpacked his um, his kit and from deep within the kit he drew out this amazing bony frame that was always in the several houses I had growing up and always fascinated me as a child because it seemed like this really, um, I don't know, oracular in the sort of way that George O'Keefe was uh, fascinated by the kind of apertures and um, almost hagstone kind of... Um, portals of the pelvis this most interesting of shapes to look at it growing up it always seemed to embody in some strange way this uh, great venturing that my father had done before my birth and seemed to speak of these amazing um, impossible landscapes that he'd explored um obviously listeners cannot see this but just for my benefit dan how big is a polar bear pelvis oh well um it's probably the size of between a foot and a foot and a half across. If you imagine, I'm trying to think of something similar. <laughs> it's, just, it's never been asked me before. Um, okay, if you imagine a really large cat and you're holding that in some way, this is a bad analogy, but sure, let's go with it. Or like a, like a, oh, like a motorbike helmet. If you're holding a motorbike helmet, that kind of perhaps size mass kind of thing but it's utterly strange and weird to behold and it's not a bone that I'd ever really considered but it's quite big it's quite interesting and it's got these um sort of when I growing up I knew it was a pelvis but I didn't quite I don't think knew, know what a pelvis was and because you have the kind of um hip joint sockets it they do look like sort of eye sockets mm. and so I was always thinking um, that it might be some sort of scully type thing. It's quite dinosaur-esque. My friend Polly has a hippopotamus skull, obviously. And and when my, when I say that my dad brought a polar bear pelvis back, there's some part of me that always wants to add, obviously, to the end of that sentence because it's just so mad. But Polly has this hippopotamus skull and it has similar kind of um, sockety eyes because hippopotami do. Um, and when I saw that, Recently at her house, I was like, vindicated, vindicated. At some level, it does look slightly skull-esque. But um, yeah, and it's a big thing. When you're a little kid, it's a big sort of strange object to have in the house. And sometimes it was on my dad's desk and sometimes it was hanging on the wall. And it had this amazing sort of the, the ends of the hips are slightly broken. It's like a quite coral interior. It's amazingly heavy and yet sort of lighter than you think and holding it, you're like, what is how, what, how heavy should this be? And um, it's got this line of quite dorsal, quite mountainous crests going over the, the, the back of it. It's a really, really interesting thing. And when I, you know, to look at it, it's you lose yourself in it, the amount going on with it. 
And so this is a book that's based around the idea of, you know, the refuge, be that a, you know, a, a hut, a bothy. Um, there's a chapter on the lighthouse, which we'll touch on later on. Um, but of course, what that means is it's also a book about the wildernesses in which these refuges are yeah. set, isn't it? Yes, it's about going to the ends of the earth and seeing what's already there, what's been left by previous expeditions or people who sort of like stuck it out. You know, these are the kind of last refuges, both in terms of jumping off points for expeditions, but also there's a place in Svalbard that I visit called Pyramiden, which is a Russian ghost town. And that was the furthest outpost of Russian communism until... Um, it was abandoned and mothballed in the mid to late 90s when both the communism and the uh, funding ran out. And now is this most amazing kind of um, paused, um, very eerie, beautifully silent space. Um, so some of them, when you think of an outpost, you might think of something like a lighthouse, which is obviously, you know, manned, but manned maybe by two or three people at most. Um, in the heyday of of rock lighthouses or a bothy or a firewatch cabin, which I think we'll talk about later, which has one watchman in it. But some of the lighthouses, uh, rather some of the outposts that I visited uh, were populated by, you know, thousands in the case of Pyramid. And, OK, so let, we'll, we're going to go through some of the places that you visit and we'll start with Iceland, which mm-hmm. is the the first one in the book after the introduction and in Iceland there's this network of of shelters Iceland is this is this country where most people live around the edge around the coastline um and often these shelters are in the are inland in the you know in walking paths across the middle of the country so who maintains these um they're maintained by an organization uh which I will struggle to pronounce but I I call it Fairlag Islands, but that's very unlikely to be how it's actually pronounced. They're a very interesting organisation and they look after these um, cell house, which translate as houses of joy. And um, these buildings were originally built by the Norse, as you say, to make certain journeys on foot possible through the kind of barren hinterland inside, very cold, permafrosted um, and tundric hinterlands. Um, but the journeys had to be made to get to places like, for example, the Parliament Stone, where the decisions were taken. And the journeys were only able to be made because there were stations along the way. Uh, the early sail house were... They never thought to move the Parliament, somewhere more convenient. Ah, uh, well, you know, your convenience... This is the oldest your convenience in the world, isn't it? The yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I think your convenience is someone else's, well, now <laughs> I've got to walk. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, and I don't I don't know. I mean, they'd, that decision would have to be taken at the Parliament, at which point everyone's there, so let's just keep it as it is. Um, but also the, these cell houses were used by farmers as sort of storage for food for sheep because the sort of sheep and farming was always very important. But anyway, what would happen was that the Norse would go across and they would make these early shelters, which were really like, I described them as 
um, rock and turf igloos, if you can imagine that. They'd sort of hollow out as much of the permafrosted ground as they could and then they'd build this man-made cave and they would have this little uh, black dot on the horizon that they could walk towards perhaps and they would have to do 20 miles in a day and then they could be assured that there'd be this little kind of pod style situation which would be warm because there would be you know eric and his five norse friends all crammed in there and it maybe it could be somewhere where you could store some provisions as well um but over the years like the ship of theseus i think you know they've been rebuilt so many times that very little apart from the foundations remains and now a lot of them resemble um quite eccentric but recognizably a bunkhouse and uh this organization that i went out and uh helped renovate a couple of the cell house with they look after the cell house and open them in uh sort of the summer for people to use and they become incredibly popular and so whereas you would have these little houses which perhaps a couple of icelandic people might use of a weekend to get out and see their great you know glaciers or volcanoes or you know something like that now you will have a campsite around it of several hundred people perhaps in 50 tents and so this organization are having to wrestle with the idea of do they put in sanitation and things like that and wrestling with the idea that if you're in a brant guide and you've become one of the destination wildernesses on earth is that wilderness is it a wilderness you know exactly yeah are you just are people inevitably going to destroy the thing that they've come to see Yes, is the answer to that, I think. And so that has to be managed. And Stefan, who I spoke with, um, he says it's like a, people are going to see the Mona Lisa or something like this. You have to put tape on the gallery floor and say you do not go beyond this. So the painting remains untouched, the landscape remains untouched, and everyone has a nice time, and they are shepherded to the spot they want to see, and they're shepherded away, and the least harm possible is done, all of which is a lot of work, you know. And it's the same with the um, Selfos, uh waterfalls and geyser with the well, with the geyser and um you know so a lot of what they're doing seems to be curation as much as trying to build up the actual infrastructure for having massive amounts of people look at very fragile ecosystems and this is obviously becomes a theme through the book because we'll talk about um desolation peak in wyoming next which is something of a you know pilgrimage site for for people um, obviously, Scotty's Bothies are there for the, you know, for for this purpose as well. It's obviously great that these places are democratised and a lot mm. of people can experience them. But then again, you know, the, the the irony of that is it does sort of take away some of the specialness of the place in the first place. Yes, and also, I mean, Desolation Peak is an interesting one in as much as Kerouac stayed there in 1955, I think, for 63 days. And he was there because his friend um, Gary Schneider, the poet and Buddhist, had been on Sourdough Mountain nearby. This is in the Cascade Mountains. It's actually in Washington State. So it's um, East Coast America, above Seattle. You go up the freeway and then you get to a place called Bellingham. And then you go off west and you, you know, your windshield divides these mountains that are coming towards you. And they build and they build this great green range. And then you go in and you get to, you're going up the Skagit Valley. So you're following the Skagit River. And then you get to these massive dams, these big um, FDR five-year plan dams. And uh, then you get a boat and you go for quite a long time, very fast up this, the big Ross Lake. And then you get to 
uh, Desolation Peak and then you hike for a day up that and then you get to the top and there's this little greenhouse really on the top, this little square vedette and um, the current lookout is a guy called Jim Henterley mm-hmm. who's wonderful. Um, he's ex-101 Airborne, you know, um, signed up for Vietnam, but by that point the 101 had left, so he managed to sort of like, in retrospect, he's very grateful he didn't wasn't actually sent, but that's Jimi Hendrix's old division, so, you know, he of All Along the Watch House. Um, and it's a wonderful place. It takes a hell of a lot of graft to get there and a lot of endurance to do it, and that's if you get the boat. When we walked out, we didn't get the boat, so there were several days walking down the side of a very long lake. And that's in kind of bear country as well, which is another interesting thing to be considered. And we met a bear through a sheet of um, tent canvas, which is good because, you know, what's bad in life is good in the book. And I was there with my friend Colin, who suffers terrible night terrors, although on the night that the bear approached us, he was perfectly fine and sleeping soundly until he woke up with a start, turned his head towards you. Because you woke him up? Well, I think the bear woke him up, really, with a snuffling sound. He sat up very straight and turned his head torch on and said, what's going on? And I just went... No, Colin, no, no, go back to sleep. Turn the torch off, Colin. And, you know, he was just aware that there was this presence and I had the impression that all three of us were holding our breaths. But um, Jim up there, you know, deals with quite a few um, Kerouac pilgrims. Kerouac himself didn't really enjoy his time there and I think retrospectively uh, finessed the experience, it's fair to say, to make him seem more proficient and more of an outdoorsman than he was. And actually, you know, he was there for 63 days and by day 10 he had smoked all his coffee, or rather he'd smoked all his tobacco and was smoking coffee grounds. And by the end of his stay he had, you know, made friends with some invisible people and was playing um, rounds of poker with them. So he went fairly crazed fairly quickly in a way that Gary Schneider, this professional Buddhist kind of like man who's very, very much a Zen fella as opposed to Kerouac's kind of like crazed bebop hobo kind of, you know, I don't know, uh, didn't quite match up. And that was something that happened a lot where you go to these spaces, these outposts, and then you discover what's actually there as opposed to the kind of myth of it. So I've um I've I've played the uh, computer game Firewatch. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yes, with yeah. this thing. So I I feel like you know somehow I have some sort of understanding of this massive <laughs> long, you know, boat yeah. trip across the lake and then walk through for days back down the mountain or whatever. Yeah. And 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 the whole experience obviously seems to be like like one of isolation and you know being extremely far away from civilization. But it turns out that actually, you know, Jim is his his role up there is not just looking for fires. His it's almost constant contact with yeah with other people via the radio. Yeah, his his role has changed because in in Kerouac's day, certainly you would have a fire. What is it called? Um, Osborne Firefinder, which is like a turntable where you can zero in on any smoke. What is that, that like a telescope? Or like... It's it's kind of like a turntable mm-hmm. with um with sights. Okay. So you've got a crosshair, which is actually still made of horsehair because they haven't found anything that does the job so well. And you can zero in on any rising smoke that you see. And then on the turntable itself is a map. And so what you have done is you've got given a bearing. And then what happens, at least used to happen, is other um, watchtowers or um, Belvedere's would similarly do that and then you would triangulate. However, now, although Jim still does do this, a lot of what he does is to act as a sort of radio, I don't know, bouncer, but I think there's a better term for it. But he certainly um, 
is in touch with a lot of people because the way that Desolation Peak um, is positioned, one side perhaps is getting radio signals, but the other will not. And so he is a relay dispatcher as much as anything else, that's the term. Um, so he's in touch with people who, were it not for him, would not you know, have any way of communicating because 3G has not yet managed to sort of like sneak its way into the Cascades. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty. That means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dan Richards, and we're talking about his latest book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. And Dan, we'll stay in the USA for a bit. We've been talking about Desolation Peak. And you also take a, a trip to Utah. And, well, you can tell us what's in Utah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's it's what's in Utah and not in Utah as well. I mean, that whole chapter is quite apocalyptic. And I had a sense that it might be slightly apocalyptic, but the very much the, the dice was set when um, leaving Seattle to fly down to L.A. Because I should say I was going to visit a Mars base in Utah. They have a, a sort of experiment running where they have a um, simulation of what they think a Mars base, future Mars base might be like. And astronauts and scientists go there to kind of a mix of do science and play at space. And so some of this is um, sociological and um, sort of behavioural experimentation as to how people um, get on being fundamentally bereft of a lot of the things you, you have on Earth and, you know, how people are able to, to deal with that. And others are about the sort of science that would go on there. So it's a venue for that sort of thing. And it's in Utah, which is a Mormon state. Um, the nearest town is a place called Green River, which is about 100 kilometers away. And the nearest big city, major city to that is Provo or, you know, a bit further on Salt Lake City. So I was trying to get down there and I hadn't been given the go ahead. So from Seattle, I flew down to L.A. to stay with some friends. And on that flight, I was sitting next to, as it turned out, one of the major lawyers for Amazon. We got talking 
and she was telling me that they're building this HQ2. And one of the reasons for that is they've drawn some circles on a map and they've sort of determined that North Korea can potentially wipe out East Coast America. So they want somewhere West Coast. West Coast. Yeah, because if everything's irradiated, you'll need some more stuff and Amazon can help you with that. Um, and none of this was said in a smiling way. And I, I was thinking, wow, you know, there's Portland down there, thousands of mar- thousands of meters below. And gosh, doesn't that sunset look slightly, you know, strained and nuclear suddenly? Um, and obviously, you know, Amazon have other reasons to move, like uh, more uh, lax labor laws and things like that on the West Coast. But the thing about the whole trip, the trip began to get a bit sci-fi from that point on. I went to LA and I was given the sort of first test batch of something called... Um, oh, Soylent. Soylent. Yeah, they've got, a, they've got a new drink called Soylent. And it's a lovely chocolate drink. And I was given it and it's made of soy, not people. And uh, I was just thinking, OK, alarm bells here. And then flying into um, Salt Lake City, things got a bit weird. And I got my first ever Uber uh, to the station for a train that didn't exist. And it was buses. But then you're busing through this tent city of homeless that goes on for ever and then you go through this very apocalyptic rainstorm in a desert and then you get to an uh down to a place called green river that isn't green and there doesn't appear to be a river and then you try and hitch and i was very much like hugh grant stumbled onto the set of no country for old men and uh not driving in america is treated very much like a political act until you explain that it's great you you don't drive and people when when you explain that people still say you should have hired a car yeah even so you're not going to get there um and then eventually i just stumbled upon the fact that i'd been to university with a dinosaur expert who lived three miles away which is nothing in america i mean three hours away which is nothing at all in america in terms of distance because they don't deal in miles or kilometers so much as hours away uh which is the same for a few of the places that i visited for the book such were the you know vast scapes that i was covering and so i got a lovely lady called amber uh, gave me a lift who I'd never met before. She was a friend of my friend and her middle name was Bones. And I never determined if that was a kind of, you know, nom de gare or actually she was called Bones and was a dinosaur expert. And she was explaining to me that where the Mars base is carrying out all their research is also the major source of fossils um, for the Utah Raptor, known locally as the Super Slasher, which is the bad one in Jura- the first Jurassic Park that really upset Jeff Goldblum and got into the canteen and ran amok. And so you end up with this amazing thing of being at a Mars base, talking to some scientists about the fact that they dig up quite regularly dinosaur skeletons, which they then have to ignore. Because <laughs> you get all these, you know, would-be astronauts going, oh, damn. Well, just discount that. Sort of look at, leave that and go for these rocks over here because they have rocks on Mars, but it's very unlikely they'll have raptors. So what are they doing? Tell us some more about what they're actually doing there on the site. Well, I think... I mean, a lot of it is about sensory deprivation and about the way that teams of people work. Mars is a long, long way away when you consider that the moon is 48 hours away. So when something like Apollo 13 happened, they could rapidly sort that situation out. And whilst it might have felt like an eternity to those people involved, they have the opportunity to use the moon as a slingshot and they get their crews back. Mars, depending on the relative um, orbits around the sun of earth and mars is six to eight months away and you can tell it's a vast distance because if america uses hours you know space travel uses months and then 
you get there and if something's gone terribly wrong, you wait a month and then you can come back. So that's another six to eight months back. But that would be pointless and very annoying. So you'd probably stay there for at least 18 months um, before coming back. So at least three years of your life on this journey. And the first six to eight months of the journey out, you are traveling away from Earth as far fast as possible. And I don't believe there's any possibility of coming back before you get to where you're going. So the sort of people to be sent have to be comfortable with that. And if not comfortable, able to deal. And um, the scientist, uh, Dr. Shannon Rupert, who I was talking to out in Utah, was saying that if you had the people going to the moon, they had to be, you know, there's a reason they're all ex-fighter pilots. Uh, they had incredible reactions. They could deal with things in the you know millisecond it needed to be done you know you've got neil armstrong landing a thing and a button is shouting at him there's an alarm going that he's got four seconds and he can do it he can do that but if you're going to mars you want people who are the other end of a spectrum they can deal with terror that lasts three years like a background white noise they are people with lots of skills but perhaps not much imagination as to all the things that can go wrong i mean it boggles me the whole thing boggles me um but maybe it has its kind of um mirror in the sort of people who were going with shackleton and scott and nansen to the to the poles back in the day you know you know the, there's the famous advert wanted men of courage for an adventure things like that and I think whilst the moon is understandable, Mars is kind of boggling in the complexity of the mission, but also in the time scales and the levels of risk involved. So it was really interesting to go and talk to people about this. At the same time, very cool. You're in the middle of this red desert. You're staying in these white pods. I was the only one there for that, uh, the couple of days that I was there. And so you wake up each morning and you're like, oh, yeah, there's a porthole and there I'm looking at the sky. And when you're going to bed, there's a porthole and yes, I'm looking at space and you could be anywhere. You know, it was it was amazing and thoroughly. I don't know. I felt my my psyche was fundamentally rejigged by being there. I've never felt more isolated. And I knew that several miles away, there was Dr. Shannon living in her kind of um, station wagon somewhere. You know, she had her mobile home with her two dogs and she was watching Game of Thrones somewhere, you know. But at the same time, I've never felt more isolated than in that desert in my pod. And a lot of these outposts that I visit, there is that sense of otherness just from the sheer, I don't know, distance from other people. But then I make the point further on that many people could be fundamentally boggled and changed if they just turned off the internet and their phone for a week. And I, you know, you get people here... When the big um, volcano went off on Iceland and everyone's travel was grounded, you know, people went into meltdown because apparently air travel has become a sort of right, you know, the the right to fly vast distances has become sort of rapidly burnt in, sort of hardwired into people in the same way they need constant connection to people through phones and the internet and all of this stuff. And just taking that away, people go rapidly go into meltdown and just... Seeing the bounds of that was also an interesting, almost tangent that came from the book. Just to round this off, then you you end up in Svalbard, as you said, which is where the the, the polar bear pelvis came from mm. originally. When I was a kid, I was I would look at I was always fascinated with maps and atlases, and the one place that I would look at that fascinated me the most, I think, just because it had a weird name, was Svalbard. Mm. Um, what was it like? 
It was remarkable. It was very, very cold, but not as cold as I'd expected. I was expecting to touch things and leave sort of like bits of my skin behind. But, you know, I was with some brilliant guides. There was a guy called Erland who was wonderful. We spent a long time on snowmobiles because that's the, the way you travel around vast distances there in the winter when we went. We went in May, April, May. We went out on the Barents Sea, which is, you know, as far as we could tell, was solid all the way to the pole. So if we had enough food and fuel, we could have snowmobiled our way um, to the top of the earth. And again, you know, I share your fascination with the maps. You know, these the idea that the names of these places are so cold and so impossible and so strange. But as part of the research for this, I spoke to Philip Pullman and um, he we, we, we were talking about... Uh, you know, maps and the names of things and research. And it turned out he's never actually been to Svalbard, despite the fact that many people will associate Svalbard mainly with the, um, you know, his Dark Materials trilogy. But he did all of his research, very much like Tolkien did, um, in the Bodleian, in Oxford, using the maps and using the using the um, sort of uh, the old Norse names for things. And I think maps are such... I mean, I have lovely end papers in the map, in in the book of my father's expedition, um, and I think maps are just, in and of themselves, portals um, to great adventure of the mind. And I, I love them dearly. And as it turned out, I wasn't able to get to Neolicent because the the world has changed and the glaciers where my father was walking around are either gone or terribly unstable or very fragile because a lot has changed in the last 35 years. And there I was buzzing about on these snowmobiles and feeling rather perturbed by that because... Later, I got the chance to go on dog sledding, and that made far more sense to me. But in the first, going around on, on snowmobiles felt really just wrong based on everything that I knew. And, of course, you know, the reasons that Kongersfjord isn't there anymore and is retreating now at 400 metres a year, which, again, is just terrifying. It's, you know, that's, that's beyond visible melting. It's not people, too many people with snowmobiles on Svalbard. There is a bigger problem. I mean, it's the people I met in L.A. in their cars. It's the people who are, you know, driving around, around, around King's Cross here. But this cognitive dissonance and the, the, the knowledge of all of this, we have so much knowledge and yet we have so little going on in terms of action, really. That was a constant, the white noise of the Mars astronauts, the white noise of this book for me was the fact that many of the outposts I visited were at the ends of the world at a time when there was more. And now, you know, they really are hanging on, some of them. So I've been talking to Dan Richards. We've been talking about his latest book, Outpost, A Journey to the World Ends of the Earth, which is out now from Gate. Dan, thanks very much for coming back and talking about it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.